The enduring attraction of war is this. Even with its destruction and carnage, it can give us what we long for in life. It can give us purpose, meaning, a reason for living. Only when we are in the midst of conflict does the shallowness and vapidness of much of our lives become apparent. Trivia dominates our conversations and increasingly our airwaves. And war is an enticing elixir. It gives us resolve, a cause. It allows us to be noble. And those who have the least meaning in their lives, the impoverished refugees in Gaza, the disenfranchised North African immigrants in France, even the legions of young who live in the splendid indolence and safety of the industrialized world, are all susceptible to war's appeal. Chris Hedges, from War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. Listen to the man who knew we finally had enough So we started up a podcast and called upon his friends No matter where you're from or your unique political bent Here's the story of our perfect American mess Max in 99 with the facts to blow your mind And Nanny with the wicked sound design So grab a seat and pour yourself a glass of writer's tears Unfucking the Republic is about to Amidst the daily pressures of life, the 2024 election looms like a dark cloud on the horizon, inescapable and foreboding. A fractured American electorate will be herded together like zombies on a single day to cast their lot with two nearly indistinguishable political apparatuses. It's little wonder why polling data is so untrustworthy. We're all mad at the same people for different reasons. Awash in anecdotes that promote confirmation bias, the American people are united in their disunity and struggling to piece together a semblance of order. Dumb content from dumb people relentlessly streaming through smartphones and smart TVs, pounding away at us like a hailstorm. Chopped up stories of manufactured outrage have only accelerated in the age of artificial intelligence that makes it easy to conceive, package, distribute, and promote noxious hot takes through the media hellscape governed by tech overlords. And thus, we're uncomfortably numb. Numb to the horrors unfolding in the world around us. Numb to the images out of Gaza that flood our social media apps. Numb to the bodies we step over in the street. Numb to the violence in rhetoric, legislation, and actions of our fellow travelers on Earth. Since October 7th of 2023, 1,130 Israeli citizens have been killed by Hamas. In response, the number of Palestinian casualties, as of this recording, are as follows. Gaza. 28,340 people killed, including 12,150 children and 8,300 women. With an estimated 67,984 injured, including 8,663 children. 6,327 women. And more than 7,000 missing and presumably dead. The occupied West Bank. 390 dead, including 102 children and 4,450 injured. On February 14, 2024, the U.S. State Department announced Mohammed Ahmed Mohammed Kadur, a 17-year-old Palestinian-American and U.S. citizen, 
was shot in the head by the IDF while sitting in his car in the occupied West Bank. Last month, the New York Times ran a rather optimistic piece titled The Decline of Deaths in Gaza. Quote, for more than a month now, the Biden administration and other allies of Israel have begun urging its leaders to scale back the war in Gaza. A more targeted battle plan, these allies have said, could reduce civilian casualties while still weakening Hamas. Some Israeli officials have made the same argument. It's now clear that Israel's leaders have followed the advice, at least partially. The Israeli military announced a strategic shift two weeks ago. It has reduced the number of troops in northern Gaza. And the most tangible sign of the change is the decline in deaths among Gazan residents, as reported by the Hamas-controlled local government. End quote. And yet, while 123 million Americans tuned in to watch the Super Bowl, a record viewership, mind you, Israel commenced a bombing campaign in Rafah, located in southern Gaza. This is where the vast majority of the displaced Gazans from the north were told to flee as the IDF leveled entire cities, hospitals, every single university, and even cemeteries for good measure. 16 cemeteries, to be exact. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu blithely stated on U.S. television that the refugees in Rafah were given plenty of warning to return to the north in advance of the bombings. Of course, there's no place for these refugees to go and no ability to get there. And so they waited and more were murdered. And there it is. The right word. That's right. Murder. The word the New York Times conveniently omitted when talking about the carnage in Gaza. A decline in deaths? Death is the result. He died. Oh, really? How? Heart attack. He died. Oh, really? How? He was murdered. Very different narratives. The way we talk about conflict and violence matters. And yet we've become so immune to horror that we don't think twice when reading something as benign as a decline in deaths. Apart from tone, frequency matters as well. As The Intercept reports, quote, in the New York Times, Washington Post, and Los Angeles Times, the words Israeli or Israel appear more than Palestinian or variations thereof, even as Palestinian deaths far outpaced Israeli deaths. For every two Palestinian deaths, Palestinians are mentioned once. For every Israeli death, Israelis are mentioned eight times, or a rate 16 times more per death that of Palestinians. Numb to the banality of violence. Hannah Arendt remains one of the most important historians and philosophers of the 20th century. She's responsible for the phrase, the banality of evil, which is taken from her book of the same name in which she reflects on the trial of Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi credited for architecting the final solution. Judith Butler, a modern day giant in the fields of philosophy and gender studies, understands Arendt as deeply as anyone. In The Guardian a few years back, Butler offered this view of Arendt's work. Quote, her indictment of Eichmann reached beyond the man to the historical world in which true thinking was vanishing, and, as a result, crimes against humanity became increasingly thinkable. The degradation of thinking worked hand-in-hand hand with the systematic destruction of populations. End quote. No need to wonder what Arendt would make of our society today. As a German-American Jewish scholar writing in the mid-century, Arendt had many thoughts and connections to the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. While she favored the creation of a safe haven for the Jewish people, she was hardly a fan of the Zionist project and thought that the native Arab population should live equally among Jewish refugees in a secular political state that was collaboratively formed. Even during Eichmann's trial, Butler writes, quote, 
Arendt did not think that the history of anti-Semitism or even the specificity of anti-Semitism in Germany could be tried. She objected to Eichmann's treatment as a scapegoat. She criticized some of the ways that Israel used the trial to establish and legitimate its own legal authority and national aspirations. She thought the trials failed to understand the man and his deeds. The man was either made to stand for all of Nazism and for every Nazi, or he was considered the ultimately pathological individual. It seemed not to matter to the prosecutors that these two interpretations were basically in conflict. She thought that the trial necessitated a critique of the idea of collective guilt, but also a broader reflection on the historically specific challenges of moral responsibility under dictatorship. Indeed, that for which she faulted Eichmann was his failure to be critical of positive law, that is, a failure to take distance from the requirements that law and policy imposed upon him. In other words, she faults him for his obedience his lack of critical distance, or his failure to think." End quote. This is Thoreau's civil disobedience to the nth degree. Support for the war in Gaza among Israeli citizens remains incredibly high, a sentiment Netanyahu does not enjoy as his approval ratings continue to falter. But support within the halls of power in the United States remains just as high despite the obvious collective punishment of the Palestinian people. A growing number of young voters and ethnic minority groups are calling for a ceasefire in Gaza at a minimum. But the Biden administration appears ready to ride out the storm and hope the slaughter turns to background noise by the time of the election. Even our supposed allies in the region are incapable of changing the administration's calculus in Gaza. Taking the podium at the White House after a meeting between leaders, King Abdullah II of Jordan implored a visibly uncomfortable President Biden to take action to halt the genocide. Before Abdullah took to the podium, Biden offered his own remarks. They began with the usual both-sides-ism admonishment before acknowledging the imminent assault on Rafah and included another verbal gaffe in which he referred to it as, quote, our military operation. Take a listen. The King and I also discussed the situation in Rafah. As I said yesterday, our military operation in Rafah, the, the major military operation in Rafah, should not proceed without a credible plan, a credible plan for ensuring the safety and support of more than one million people sheltering there. Many people there have been displaced, displaced multiple times, fleeing the violence to the north, and now they're packed into Rafah, exposed and vulnerable. They need to be protected, and we've also been clear from the start, we oppose any forced displacement of Palestinians from Gaza. And yet, with America's eyes trained to Taylor and Travis, the operation began. Are we really that powerless to change the facts on the ground in Gaza? I know this much, our money and our mouths are in two different places. We're saying one thing, but funding another, as the Senate just wrapped up another bill to send money to Israel and Ukraine. The powerful in this country are riding roughshod over the objections of the people. And as righteous as many are in calling for an end to the atrocities, the leaders we elect to represent us are making us complicit by proxy through money and munitions. We're one step removed from the IDF soldier who partakes in the massacre of children with American weapons. The same soldier who is failing to, quote, take distance from the requirements that law and policy imposed upon him, as Butler suggests. 
arm's length distance in the United States makes us less complicit than those who pull the trigger in blind obedience, but complicit nonetheless. This is a national disgrace. We need a better class of leadership in this country, but do we even deserve it? There are barbarians at the gate scheming to manufacture the next atrocity for profit. Take Eric Prince, who recently proclaimed on his own podcast that perhaps it's time for us to recolonize parts of Latin America and the whole of Africa. All this talk of illegal migration in Europe, in the United States, it ultimately comes down to a contest of what is governance. Who is governed, which countries are governed well? And if so many of these countries around the world are incapable of governing themselves, then, then it's time for us to just put to just to, to put the imperial hat back on to say, we're gonna govern those countries if you're incapable of governing yourselves, because enough is enough. We're done being invaded. Because our own national security risk is at exactly. national security interests are at stake. You can say that about pretty much all of Africa. They're incapable of governing themselves and benefiting their citizens because the governments there are all about looting and pillaging and lining their pockets and going shopping in Paris instead of actually right, making their country a better Hold on a second, hold on. People on the land. left are gonna watch this, they're gonna say, wait a minute, Eric Prince is talking about being a colonialist again. Absolutely. Now the pretense for this statement was a discussion about the US-Mexico border. Prince blames what he calls ungovernable countries for global migration crises rather than the destabilizing effects of capitalism, neocolonialism, and climate change. Prince is currently the head of a private equity firm, but he's best known for his connections to several armed mercenary groups such as Blackwater, which he founded. And here's why this idiot's sentiments matter. First off, he's referred to still as a shadow advisor to Donald Trump, so his star may be on the rise once again. Second, these kind of destabilizing war efforts are familiar to him. He's not just some talking head. He's literally the godfather of modern mercenary warfare. Oh yeah, and he's Betsy DeVos's brother. But here's the part that I found most dangerous about this conversation. Some countries are really getting it together. Look at what El Salvador did. Bukele, murder capital of, 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 of Latin America, he said, no more. Now El Salvador is safer than Prince William County. I mentioned Bukele of El Salvador in the newsletter a couple of times now. His staggering re-election numbers are a big deal in Latin America, and we need to pay attention to them here in the United States as well. For years, El Salvador has been one of the largest countries of origin for migrants entering through the southern border. According to State Department data, quote, El Salvador went from fourth largest source of migration to the United States in 2020 to 11th largest source in 2023, end quote. Credit is being given to the administration of self-styled CEO and tech bro, Naib Bukele, who refers to himself as, quote, the world's coolest dictator. Bukele rose to fame as a dynamic mayor of a relatively small town, all the way to the presidency, where he stymied political opponents and traditional parties every step of the way. Aside from flashy projects and declaring Bitcoin a bankable currency, Bukele has captivated the imagination of Salvadorans through his extreme incarceration policies of gang members. Of all the dubious rankings to achieve, El Salvador now has the highest incarceration rate per capita in the world. Over just a couple of short years, Bukele has turned El Salvador into a veritable police state, rounding up tens of thousands of citizens suspected of having gang affiliations. As a result, crime has plummeted. 
the economy has gained traction, and Salvadorans no longer fear for their lives on a daily basis. So there's a clear tension for those who value civil liberties, habeas corpus, and natural rights. And this is different from admiring Orban of Hungary or Kim Jong-un of North Korea. These leaders might captivate the likes of Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump, but they occupy relatively little space in our collective minds. Bukele, on the other hand, is very much in our orbit because of the number of Salvadoran immigrants in the U.S. and its geographic proximity, but mostly because it's offering conservative figures a blueprint to reform our border policies. Hmm, how so? Liberals have long made the case that perhaps fewer people would try to seek asylum in the United States if we stopped destabilizing Latin American economies and supported them instead. Neoliberal exploits of the past aimed to overthrow democratically elected regimes in order to denationalize industries. Today's inverted totalitarian state run by oligarchs is content to sell arms and tactical training and expertise to the dictators. There's no need to hand over the keys to your primary industries. Practically speaking, we might not be able to secure the southern border with a wall or enough drones, but we do know how to foment civil war and overthrow regimes in the southern hemisphere. Eric Prince is kind of just saying the quiet part out loud here. Bukele's success through authoritarian means will undoubtedly inspire neighboring nations who have seen an upsurge in migrant activity as their economies struggle. All eyes on Ecuador and Honduras, both of which have experienced political instability and upticks in violence in recent years. Honestly, it's hard to imagine many Americans even giving a shit if this comes to fruition. The other night, Sean Hannity was interviewing former New York City mayoral candidate, talk show host, and face of the famed guardian angels, Curtis Sliwa. During the interview, Sliwa pointed behind the camera and told Hannity, In fact, our guys have just taken down one of the migrant guys right here on the corner, 42nd and 7th, while all can, this is Can you is pan taken. the camera? They've taken over. They've taken over. You'd like the camera over there if at all possible. Several of the Guardians were pummeling a citizen they assumed was an undocumented immigrant. Turns out, he was just some dude from the Boogie Down Bronx who was trying to disrupt the interview. Hannity shrugged it off. Fox issued a half-hearted apology the next day. The Guardians went about their merry way, and the man who was accosted was given a summons for disorderly conduct. And the world kept turning. Hannity's nonplussed response to a man being beaten on camera is all of us. Imagine years from now, Palestinians putting us all on trial, showing us footage and asking us what the fuck we were thinking allowing these atrocities to happen. They would point to corporate oligarchs like Eric Prince who darken the hallways of power and speak about imperialism with impunity. They would enter our treatment of migrants into evidence, condemn our obedience, our lack of critical distance, our failure to think. The recent special election in New York's CD3, the infamous George Santos District, was itself a condemnation of our humanity. Journalists, pundits, and pollsters are twisting themselves into knots trying to analyze the results and glean insight into Tom Swasey's winning strategy. Now, I said prior to the election, as this is my district, that this would be treated as a bellwether. But in the end, the preposterous amount of money that was poured into the race was the difference as the Democrats spent literally millions of dollars flooding the airwaves and stuffing mailboxes and inboxes. 
The Republican differentiating message was to paint Swazi as a woke politician who supported Joe Biden 100% in his previous terms. It's laughable if you know Tom Swazi. The Democrats pounded Republican candidate Mozzie Pillip with abortion ban fear-mongering. But it's where they campaigned on common ground that reveals the true story. Immigration and Israel. As the special election headed into the final days, it became a contest of who could support Israel more vociferously and who would be tougher on undocumented migrants. In the end, Swazi's name recognition and financial backing spoke the loudest. Even The Daily Show joked that it was a foregone conclusion. A Democrat winning in New York is not exactly shocking news. It's like, it's like finding out vaccines make you gay. We know! That's why we're taking them! Right. Whether you think this race was a bellwether and a roadmap for Democratic victory, name recognition of an incumbent, or a victory for fundraising prowess, what should concern us all is that both campaigns were covertly militant and hostile toward suffering. Indifference is complicity. Here endeth the lesson. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. We are in post-show musings and I am with 99 in studio. How are you? Uh, I feel like I haven't slept in three days. Okay. You look good. Thanks. Okay. Did you see The Daily Show, Jordan Klepper's hosting of The Daily Show, where they did a whole thing on Long Island? I did not. And the district? No. It's uh, the last clip that we ran as part of it, but we should we should watch it together. Okay. Um, I'm always down for watching TV together. Can we hold hands? Sure. Okay. Fun. Um, it's always weird when, like, your district, like, our district is, like, the most famous district for another five minutes, and then <laughs> everyone will move on from it. Uh, but it's just weird seeing somebody like Tom Swazi get this all this national attention and being mentioned like in the lead of the New York Times and on the Daily Show and all the major news broadcasts. Yeah. It's like, you know, I know this guy personally, and I just know that he is he's at home probably just naked with a tub of popcorn, jerking himself off, oh, watching God. clip after clip after clip after clip. I told you the commercial. I used to referenced it. It was a his personal ad that said. I'm not liberal. I'm proudly in the middle. Yep. That's proudly. our guy. So they're 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 touting this as I mean there's there's so much to unpack with that district. Uh, I want to talk about the the larger kind of narrative here, but when you unpack this district, it's so interesting. They they literally spent I I think I said 7 plus million dollars in like 6 weeks. Every single day multiple pieces of mail in my mailbox for both candidates signs literally everywhere on the roads from you know queens all the way through the middle of long island yep and um pillip actually when she finally got on camera when we finally got to see her speak was was an idiot <laughs> and i was actually surprised that she was um that she was as stupid as she was to be perfectly honest was she nervous maybe um i mean maybe it's possible. Uh, she just she just cut a really bad presence. I don't think many people actually watched that or cared about it. 
I really think that this was just this was uh, election by advertising without a doubt. But to look at this as a bellwether, even I thought that maybe there was a chance if it was a tight race that it could be a bellwether race. But I really don't think it was. I think that this was he just spent the fuck out of this district uh, because the DNC wasn't going to make the same mistake twice. And picking up a swing seat, not that easy, especially midstream like this. So I wouldn't actually look too much into it except for the obvious part that I drew upon in the in the conclusion here, which is they they really tried. I mean, Swazi did his best to out Israel, the Israeli woman who was running for this seat. It was stunning to see, like, you know, I support it. No, I support Israel. I'm from Israel. I've been to Israel. I mean, it was it was astounding. But the anti-immigrant sentiment expressed through their I mean, just overtly expressed through all their campaign messaging was incredible. Now, The Daily Show did have a very funny piece about Tom Swazi was being interviewed by uh, some national correspondent who said, you know, would it be helpful if Biden came to the district to campaign for you? And he was sort of like, um, I'm good. <laughs> Which is, a, this is sitting president. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Because Pillip on the, on the flip side, I don't know if you saw Trump tweeted about her. I did not. Called her a very foolish woman oh. for not endorsing him. Okay. Because she tried to she tried to walk the line as well. So you here you have two candidates going for a congressional district that all eyes are on, neither of which wants to talk about the person at the top, presumably at the top of both of their tickets and former and a sitting president just running on, uh, I'll be tougher at the border from fucking Queens. Okay. And the border of Manhattan. The border of Manhattan. And I'm going to support Israel more than the next person. I mean, this is where we are what right now. What if the now. Israeli people needed uh, to migrate here? Would we support them then? Yes. Come. You think? Come one, come all. You think they would take them? With, who would take them? Either we? of them. Either of them? Yes, absolutely. But they don't like migrants. Ah, it's a, I mean, there's the tension, right? They're mostly white, right? I mean, they look a, they look pretty white. I, I don't have a. I think estimate. the white Israelis would do fine. Yeah, I'm sure they could welcome. assimilate. Yeah, but it's just it's you know. like the Ukrainians. Remember when we reported on the Ukrainians that came to the southern border, came oh. all the way to the southern border, and were literally skipping the line in front of people from China and India and all around. Awful. That's the other thing about the border that I find so like wild: the countries of origin. The people trying to cross the southern border that are like like from Bangladesh. It's like, dude, what are you, no boats? Like, nobody's coming through, like, Canada, anyone? I mean, it must be easier for some reason, cheaper maybe. Maybe, but these are long fucking trips to get there. I mean, people used to take ships across the world. Yeah, and they're still kind of doing it, I guess, maybe, to get wherever they're, I don't know. I guess you'll do anything for maybe a chance at a better life if your circumstances are subpar. We need to Just decriminalize crossings. Yeah. I can't believe how much Bill Clinton gets a pass on where we are right now. Having done that Clinton series and understanding that it was his criminalization of leaving. He made it he made it illegal to leave. So when they come here, of course they stay. I mean, it's basically illegal to leave for DACA people right now. And uh, oh, and DACA, they're like 50. Like the children from the, the DACA some, children that I came in, they're like my age 30s. now. That's how long this has been going on. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. Anyway. I just, I don't know. It's 
Ugh. It's a heavy statement to say that anyone's indifference is complicity. But how are we different from fanning the flames of what we knew was a genocide at any other time in history? How is our indifference towards the suffering in Palestine any different than the indifference that we displayed during the Rwandan genocide? I just don't think... It, because we actually had boots on the ground there. We had peacekeeping forces there led by American generals that refused to intervene at that time. We have the ability to just shut off the spigot right now and stop the munitions from flowing and to force votes at the UN to open up the border crossings because the other fuckery that's happening right now, and, and there's at least some reporting you can see on the BBC about this, they are still blocking aid trucks and food trucks in Egypt from crossing the border. So the reality on the ground is this. They have pushed a million people into southern Gaza with hundreds of thousands of them, as an example, taking shelter in a place like Rafah, which had the one of the only working hospitals left. They have now gone into that hospital and they have bombed the tent cities in Rafah that had refugees. And they told them to go back north, but there's no buildings left. There are no homes left. So they've destroyed at least a half a million homes. There's, so there's no place for them to go. They can't go. They literally can't go back north. And even if they could, how? How would they get there? The desecration of cemeteries where they said that the bombs have unearthed bodies is that where Hamas was hiding, I wonder? Were they hiding in tunnels under the last university in Gaza? I, I, I mean, it is so beyond painfully apparent. And it feels like the only person that refuses to acknowledge it, this genocide, is Joe Biden. And that anybody that isn't doing what we're doing, which is trying to remind everybody that this is happening right now, is indifferent. And we have to examine our own behaviors here. We have to examine ourselves. We should be we should be horrified. I think many people are. I mean, I think I think I could say that confidently. Mm -hmm. There's just not everyone knows how to do anything about it. Like I applaud all the people like even Swazi's victory celebration before he got on the mic was interrupted by demonstrators calling for a ceasefire. Those people are heroes right now. Because they're keeping it front and center. They're keeping it top of mind. And they're doing anything and everything that they can to get the word out there and to talk about this. But to your point, there are other other genocides and <laughs> issues going on. So even with all of that, there is a caste system of who we care about. There is. And I've, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this because we've, we've specifically referenced the situation in Congo and Sudan. And the, the reason that we're indifferent to those, and it's slightly different, is that we're actually not supplying the weapons in these areas. These are civil wars that we're not doing anything to to to, to ameliorate for right. sure. Um, and it that's that's where you have to look at an organization like the UN and be like, you really don't have a purpose here, do you? I think what ties people to this is. There are, especially in uh, New York, California, Florida, parts of Texas, there are 
there are deep pockets of Palestinians, so Michigan, so there's deep pockets of Palestinian uh, origin citizens and people from Israel who live here. They're our neighbors, and they're very tied to this conflict because they have family members that are there. People have very close ties to these to this region. And um, since its formation, as we as we acknowledged, after World War II, Britain dumped Palestine in our laps and said, here, you take it, we're done. So after, you know, the Balfour Declaration had kind of fucked everything up and run its course, this became a U.S. problem. And we have been managing the situation there and the failed solutions ever since th that time, right? So this is of our own design. Now we did not participate in the in carving up Africa to the degree that the French and the British did for sure. Uh, we were not part of the, uh, as, as inexorable to the colonial projects in Africa. But Latin America, which is the next, you know, the next place that we, we really need to be spending a lot of time and attention. And I promise you that you're going to hear more over the next couple of years of what is bubbling under in Latin America. This is in our hemisphere. We have had very deliberate doctrines from, you know, going back to the Monroe Doctrine that impact the development and the economies and the landscape and the migration patterns of Central and South American countries. So we very much have a handprint on that territory. And since World War II, we very much have a handprint on what is happening in Palestine. Uh, and since we are at this point, I think the lone supporter in the world of the Israeli government, because we are the lone holdout, we're not the only one that funds them and we're not the only one that has an interest in Israel maintaining some sort of uh, economic footprint there. And, uh, and some strategic diplomatic ties, for sure. I understand that. But we're it for who's voting to allow them to continue in this fashion at the UN. So whether we like it or not, the people that we choose to represent us are making these decisions on our behalf. And we need to be very, very loud. Very loud. At any rate. Read Hannah Arendt. Read Judith Butler. I don't know Judith Butler as much, but it was it was so cool to uh, I was talking to my eldest and uh, who is a um, gender studies major in college and told her, I said, uh, have you read Hannah Arendt? And she's like, yeah, of course. And I was like, oh, yeah. Well, what about Judith Butler? She's like, I, I literally just did an essay on her. And I'm Aww. like, God damn, this is so fucking cool. So it's neat that she's that she's getting into that. And, that, you know, I'm coming to it very late in life. But uh, if you get a chance Judith Butler is very accessible. They're probably still one of the most, one of the foremost. I would say in the last decade, they have had a an enormous impact on the conversation surrounding LGBTQ rights. So if you're not reading Judith Butler, do. Uh, and it's always great to go back and dig into Hannah Arendt, although Arendt operates at a level that I find difficult to penetrate. She is was one of um, probably the, the greatest critical thinkers of the 20th century. So do those things. Let us know what you think about this. And uh, hopefully everything else is going well in everybody's life. Anything else we need to tell anybody here? No, I'm just, <laughs> I didn't mean that to be so final. 
don't know. It's just it's, it was a heavy episode. A lot, a lot to think about. It was. We do have some. First of all, if you're not signed up for the free newsletter at this point, what are you doing? We're getting a lot of signups. It's so fun, actually, just to you open up your inbox in the morning and you just see dozens of new signups every single day, which is pretty cool. So that comes out on when the episodes drop. So typically on Saturday, there is a premium newsletter that is taking on life and shape of its own. That is for membership tiers of all levels. So if you're a member, you get that premium newsletter that is coming out on Tuesdays. And we're collaborating with uh, Manny's partners over at Newsbeat on putting that together. And that's really taking shape. And people seem to be uh, very high open rates there. And people seem to be loving that content. So and there's a lot of good uh, discourse about the conflict from the Newsbeat team. Yes. Talking about it almost weekly. Yes, without a doubt. Um, and you can follow the managing editor over at Newsbeat, Rashed Mian, I think has a new Substack that is available. It is called Free the Press. So make sure to check that out if you're interested. Uh, he's talking mostly about what's happening in Gaza right now, so you can check out that. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to uh, Manny Face's YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and get those numbers up there. I have noticed that when I try to promote almost anything on our YouTube channel, uh, it is being denied flatly by the powers that be at YouTube across the board because it is all considered um, sensitive and or political content that they will not allow me to promote. So it's all got it's all on you on fuckers to organically help that word get out there. Uh, we've got some phone friends coming up that I'm excited about. We've got a lot going on with the membership tiers as well. We've got our new perks going out in the mail soon to uh, members that are, I think, comrade and above. And uh, we're going to be sending out notifications for our very first member hang, our monthly hang with Max and company. I'm not going to say who the guests are each month that we have the hang, uh, but the first one should feel super comfortable. I think you should say who the guests are. Why? Because people who aren't members... But they can hear about it after the fact and be like, oh, my God, I can't believe I missed that conversation. Or like, oh, my God, I can't believe John Stamos is going to be on 99. I know. Why would you? I think I think you have the sales tactic backwards. <laughs> we want people to to join to see these conversations. So your tactic is to lie about a celebrity and then to disappoint people when they get there. That was just an is example. That, is that what it that is? That was an example. Okay. So for the future, mm -hmm. if I'm like a huge ex fan. And then you have X on your hang. I'm going to have the entire formerly known as Twitter platform as a guest. <laughs> Fine. If I'm if I'm a huge fan of a person. Elon Musk, right? Sure. Okay. And you have a person that like I'm Peter a fan Thiel. of. Yep. Mm -hmm. Then I want to sign up before so I don't miss that person on the hang. Okay. So I'm just saying. I All think right. we should tease it out. All right. Well, the first one is just us. Yes. <laughs> As it should be, yes. because we want to make sure it's right. And it also might be fun to connect. It's just selfish on our part because we want to actually connect with our members, you know, like in a family setting, first and foremost. So that's what we'll be doing. By the way, should if we you're get a drunk during it, <gasps> that's a great idea. That's a great idea. Thank you. Oh, fun. Everyone's going to know that we're all driving home afterwards, though, except for Manny. <laughs> you're buying. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, maybe not drunk. Maybe yeah, you just have I a... was being hyperbolic anyway. Okay. But having a drink. Okay. And encourage the unfuckers to have live. a drink. But it's live. Yeah. Which means 
I mean, I'm not gonna be like I sniff, sniff, sniff. I'm, not I'm gonna thinking more about the stupid things that I say that you prevent me from uh, like killing well, my own career. You say them when you're not drinking, so. When That's what I'm drinking. saying. Like, if this is live, and you're going to introduce alcohol to it, and I think you should be able to have a coherent. How many monthly hangs did they have? They had one. They had exactly one, and uh, yeah, then it all came crashing down. One whiskey. Remember you NFTR? Won't one whiskey won't kill you? <laughs> all right, all right, folks. We'll catch you in the next thing, whatever the next thing is. Manny, thanks for everything you do. Ninety nine, love you. Catch you soon.